Okay, today we're going to talk about a, a non-controversial topic called, <laughs> called covenant baptism. Since I've been on both sides of the fence with this issue, uh, I am praying that I will be sensitive and not uh, and judicious in dealing with the matter. Um, everyone agrees that adults who repent and believe the gospel and have not been baptized should be baptized as believers. But then it comes to who should be baptized, that is the subjects of baptism, and that would have to do with children. Um, now, I was just having a conversation with Walt. I think a lot of people's initial reaction to the subject of baptizing infants is to associate it with which church? Catholic church. And the Catholics would not at all be satisfied with what I'm going to teach you this morning regarding infant baptism. It is not a leftover remnant of Roman Catholicism that we did not uh, get rid of. And so, who should be baptized? Uh, are children of believers proper candidates? And usually what happens um, when someone starts talking about infant baptism is they race immediately to the New Testament and they talk about the household baptisms, which you find in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or they go to the Gospels and see how Jesus received the little children. Or they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see that children of a believing parent are regarded as holy. But that's not really the way to understand infant baptism. We need to build it upon a foundation. Now, why do people who love Jesus and believe the Bible and the authority of the Bible and study the Bible and are men and women of God disagree so profoundly on this issue? And as with all of these issues, it's a matter of presuppositions about certain things. And so if I believe going in children are not to be baptized, then I'm going to look at it that way. And if I believe they should be baptized, I'm going to look at it in another way. And so it'll be perspectival, and it will be based on presuppositions. Now, I'm going to make a statement here that um, is very important, and yet it, for some you might want to resist it, and that's okay. Um, most understandings of infant baptism um, are not really covenantal. The person looking at them is dispensational, and that that's a huge thing. And I don't know if I... It's so complicated to try to condense all of this into 45 minutes, but I'm going to try. Now, I am not optimistic enough to think that I can get through this whole two, uh, front and back page, but I do at least want to lay the foundation today on why we do it. And a lot of it has to do with the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The issue of continuity in God's covenants and discontinuity. The issue of what is the church. Uh, the, so it, it covers so many things that it cannot be given as a soundbite answer. So let's jump right in then. And there's a correction I need to make in the first point. It should be Genesis 17 rather than Genesis 18. Now, we will begin in a foundational way at looking at Genesis 17, 
particularly verses 11 through 13. And if you want to turn there, fine. If not, just listen. I'll read it for you. In these verses, God is speaking to Abraham and to the descendants who would come after them. And he tells them this. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So here we read quite plainly that God commanded at that time the outward sign of his covenant with Abraham and his descendants that is circumcision, to be applied to infants and children, even from eight days old. So we see at the Abrahamic covenant, in the Old Testament, who were the subjects of circumcision? Adults who, like Abraham, believed, and then children and others in the household. And so that was a commandment. What is plain, not so plain, however, does this have any application to us today? And as we think through, three questions come to mind. What is the relationship between God's covenant with Abraham and God's new covenant with us today? Very important question. Number two, what is the relationship between circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant? And number three, what is the relationship between circumcision and baptism? Once we answer those questions, we will be better equipped to understand the basic arguments for applying baptism to our children in the church. So, what is the relationship, point number one, between Genesis 17 and the new covenant? The covenant that God entered into with Abraham in Genesis 17 was not an earthly temporal covenant promising earthly temporal and geographical blessings. It was not a national covenant like the covenant at Sinai enacted, uh, uh, but it was with the geographical nation of Israel. It was a spiritual covenant promising spiritual blessings. It was a covenant that was at its very heart very much like the new covenant that God has entered into with you and me today. To be sure, granted, there were national aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. But these national aspects were intended by God for spiritual fulfillment and purpose. We see this in several key passages. As we went through the book of Hebrews together, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went into the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. From this we see that God's covenant definitely had earthly and geographical dimension to it. Land was clearly promised to Abraham and to his descendants in verses 8 and 9, but verse 10 tells us, that this earthly dimension of God's promise was not the end that God had in mind. It was only the means to the end. The physical land 
and the earthly inheritance were only intended to point to Abraham and his descendants forward to a permanent land and a permanent inheritance that God had built and designed for them to enjoy, which was heaven itself. This, and not earthly promised land, was the ultimate end of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Same thing can be seen a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 15 and 16. This time it's more obvious that the author is speaking of heaven because he mentions it by name. If they, that is Abraham and Sarah, had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, uh, to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The point in these verses is that Abraham and Sarah were not ultimately looking ahead to an earthly, better country, but to a heavenly one. The earthly promised land was only intended to point Abraham and his descendants to the heavenly promised land that was to come. That was what was really being held out to them into the covenant uh, that God entered into with them. So the Abrahamic covenant anticipated, as we know from Hebrews, uh, the land being a sign or a symbol pointing to ultimately heaven. We also see the spiritual nature of the Abrahamic covenant in Romans chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul specifically connects Abraham to new covenant Christians by say, citing Abraham as an example of one who was saved in the same way that we are as, as Christians, that is, through faith alone. Abraham's faith looked ahead to Jesus. John chapter 8 verse 56 tells us that. And to heaven. Our faith looks back to the same Jesus and ahead to the same heaven. That is why Paul says it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7. It was that way in the Old Testament, still that way today. The Abrahamic covenant was never intended to be purely a national covenant enacted with Abraham and his natural or biological offspring. It was always intended to be a spiritual covenant enacted with Abraham and his spiritual offspring. We see it again more clearly in Galatians 3, where Paul plainly tells us that the Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and his offspring, not offsprings plural. It is made with his one offspring, Jesus Christ. Thus, all who believe in and are in Christ are the real sons of Abraham regardless of whether or not they are biologically descended from him. The Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are connected. One flows out of the other. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, ensures this. That is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of those who are uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, but who believe as he did and are justified as he was and also the father of those who are circumcised, that is the G uh, Jews, his biological descendants, who would be circumcised at eight days old. And then later genuinely put their faith in Christ as Abraham himself did. And so, and it is also why Paul can refer to the blessing of Abraham, not just in terms of land or physical offspring, 
but in terms of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the blessing of Abraham. And so, where the mistake is made so often when people look at the Abrahamic covenant is the dispensational error of trying to say that it's an earthly, geographical, physical promise. No, it's not. Not as the New Testament interprets it. Now, number two. What is the relationship between circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant? Some Christian brothers and sisters are fond of saying that circumcision was only intended to be an external way of distinguishing the nation of Israel from every other nation. It was a badge of identification, they argue, much like a driver's license or a passport would be today. It marked the members off of the nation of Israel and distinguished them from the rest. But there are a couple of problems with this assertion. Listen carefully. First, there was no nation of Israel in existence when God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and his descendants. It was not until Jacob and his 12 sons, Abraham's grandson and great-grandsons, that the nation of Israel began to take shape. Most of Abraham's descendants would eventually constitute the nation of Israel, but not all of them. Uh, Abraham's son through Hagar, Ishmael, is one notable exception. He had no part in the nation of Israel, but he was clearly circumcised. The same thing could be said of foreigners whom God explicitly commands Abraham to circumcise. They were not Israelites but they were connected to Abraham as members of his household and were subject to his headship, and so they were to be circumcised. Number two, the second problem in claiming that circumcision is merely a badge of national identity is that the Bible repeatedly states that circumcision was intended to be an outward sign pointing people to their need for an inward circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy 10.16, for example, we read that God commanded Israel to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. In context, it's a very clear call to repentance, which is necessary before Israel would ever be able to meet God's requirements to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, takes this step further and expressly links the inward circumcision of the heart to loving God and therefore to obtaining life. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, before Israel could love the Lord with all their heart and thus live, their hearts first needed to be circumcised. They needed the uncleanness and rebellion of their hearts cut away. That's what circumcision means, to cut away. They needed their inward resistance to God and their stubborn refusal to keep his commands to be removed. So physical circumcision was not sufficient. They needed more than that. They needed to be circumcised on the inside with a spiritual circumcision made without hands to borrow Paul's language in Colossians 2. We see again in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, 
When God promises he will bring judgment on all of those who are uncircumcised in heart and flesh, that is Gentiles, as well as on all those who are circumcised in their flesh, but not in their heart, biological descendants of Abraham, who did not inwardly or genuinely love and serve God. The point is obvious. God was not interested in outward circumcision per se. He was in interested in the inward circumcision of the heart. He was interested in outward circumcision in the, only insofar as it was a visible reminder or a pointer that pointed to what needed to take place on the inside. It was a physical sign pointing to a spiritual and inward reality. It was not an ethnic badge of identification. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we see the same idea confirmed in the book of Romans. In chapter 4, Paul states unequivocally that circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness Abraham had by faith. It therefore cannot be regarded as a physical and external mark of Israel's ethnicity. It must be seen as a physical and external mark that pointed to a spiritual and inward reality. Abraham was justified, that is, declared to be right with God by his faith. And the outward sign and seal that was given to Abraham to remind him and assure him of his standing before God was circumcision. It was not a badge of national identity. It was a spiritual sign pointing to a spiritual and inward reality in the Old Testament language to a circumcision of the heart. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was never ultimately about physical descendants and physical promises and blessings. It was always about spiritual descendants and spiritual promises and blessings. It was never ultimately about physical circumcision. It was always about the spiritual circumcision of the heart. Outward circumcision was intended to be a pointer either to what had already happened on the inside, in the case of adults such as Abraham, who were circumcised on the inside first and then on the outside, or to what they hoped and prayed and anticipated would happen on the inside. In the case of infants who were circumcised on the outside at eight days old, sometimes those who received outward circumcision as infants were never circumcised on the inside. Ishmael and Esau seem to be good examples of that. But the point is that the Abrahamic covenant was never about the physical. It was always about the spiritual. It was never about the external. It was always about the internal. Now, number three, these, are the, these first three are the ones that I consider to be the foundation of why we would apply a baptism to the children of believers. What is the relationship between circumcision and baptism? Do they have any relationship? Or is that something we made up so we could have this argument? <laughs> now, you have to understand that I fought this tooth and nail for years. You gotta understand that. But this is what pushed me over the edge. In order to answer this question, we need to look more closely at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. And Paul takes up the spiritual and inward aspects of circumcision and connects them with the spiritual and inward aspects of Christian baptism. In Christ, he tells us, 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, it's not a physical circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In these verses, Paul is speaking of spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism and applying them both to the Christian. In everything we've been saying about the Abrahamic covenant, we would expect Paul to apply the image of spiritual circumcision to the New Testament Christian. As Galatians 3.29 states, all who belong to Christ are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christians are the real descendants of Abraham. They have been circumcised on the inside, which is a synonym for regeneration. They have been circumcised on the inside. What We would expect Paul to say that, and he does, but he says more. He speaks of spiritual baptism and applies that image to the Christian as well. Both spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism apply to the New Testament or New Covenant Christian. Both capture the essence of what it means to be a believer. This tells us two important things. First, it tells us that the New Testament Christians are in continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant. By the way, the Abrahamic Covenant is an everlasting covenant. When does it quit? Never. The Sinai Covenant which is often what the New Covenant is contrasted with, especially in Jeremiah 31. A lot of people who go to Jeremiah and look at the New Covenant terminology say, well, see, this is totally different than the Abrahamic Covenant. He's not contrasting it at that point contextually with Abraham's covenant, but rather with the covenant of Moses, the Sinai Covenant, which is a different covenant altogether. So, have I got you thoroughly confused? Because I'm teaching it and I'm starting to get confused. No. (laughs) That is why we can speak of believers in Abrahamic terms. Physical circumcision is no longer important. That happened where in the Bible? Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem conference. What did they get rid of? Circumcision. Because they were still circumcising people early on. But they banned it. Um. And, well, I'll say that later. Um, But what physical circumcision was intended to represent and point to, an inward circumcision of the heart, is still every bit as important for us today. Second, Paul's statement in Colossians 2 also signals the fact that physical baptism has now replaced physical circumcision in the life of the new covenant Christian. We see this in at least two ways. One, we see it in connection with the explicit passages stating that circumcision is no longer required. Acts 15, 1-21. But that baptism is required for the new covenant Christian. Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38. Two, we see in Colossians 2 where Paul applies what physical circumcision represents, spiritual circumcision of the heart, And what physical baptism represents, spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, to the individual believers. These two factors mean that the Christians will be, 
or the Christian will be one who has been circumcised spiritually and inwardly and baptized spiritually and inwardly, but only necessarily baptized physically and outwardly, not necessarily circumcised, because circumcision is no longer required of the new covenant. The point in Colossians 2 suggests that baptism functions in the same way that circumcision did under the Old uh, Testament. Thus we see the Abrahamic covenant is essentially the same as the new covenant because it is made with Christ and all who are in Christ, therefore children of Abraham and members of the covenant God enacted with him. Moreover, we also see that circumcision functioned under the Abrahamic covenant in the same basic way. Now there are continuities with the Abrahamic covenant, and they're discontinuities. Who got circumcised? Only who? Who gets baptized? Everybody. So there is an expansion uh, of who receives the sign. Uh, and we see that circumcision is replaced by baptism as we move from the Old Testament into the New Covenant economy. Bearing all these things in mind, we would expect that if God commanded Abraham to apply the outward sign of the covenant to his biological children, even from eight days old, then we should be doing the same thing for our bio biological children unless there are specific instructions in the New Testament that we should not do so. Now this is a burden of proof argument. If, in the history of redemption, the sign of the covenant was always applied to believing adults and their offspring, their children, then one would think if at the inauguration of the new covenant, particularly Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost would have been the key time to say, well, we're through with all that covenant business. <laughs> you know, uh, no, he didn't say that. He said the baptism is for who? You and your children and for those who are far off, that's the Gentiles. Uh, and so clearly using covenantal language, you and your children. And so if, and I, I always try to put the burden of proof on my friends who insist that baptism is for believers only, where in the New Testament does it say that children are no longer? Wouldn't one look at the New Covenant and say it's far more expansive than the Old Covenant was? Why would it restrict children? It would seem to be to be more inclusive of children. Acts 2.38. Now, I'm through it. No. <laughs> if you get those three things, you've gotten a lot. Now, what do the household baptisms teach us? Oh, my goodness, it's 10 o'clock already. You don't know how frustrating this is for a teacher. All right. There are New Testament baptisms in, in the book of Acts. There are three examples of household baptisms as well. Twice in Acts 16 and once in 1 Corinthians 1, where a whole entire household was baptized without any clear indication of whether the entire household believed. Now, that might bother some of you because you're used to the emphasis 
in evangelicalism for the individual personal uh, relationship with God and responsibility. And the idea of a corporate solidarity or a household. You remember Achan? <laughs> uh, Achan sinned. What did he do? He took the booty, right? And, and he kept it. Who got killed for it? And what does everybody say? That is not fair. Right? Well, you have to talk that over with God when you see Him. But He did that. Who went in the ark? Only one person found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Who went in the ark? Whole family. And when they got out, it didn't look like some of them were really solid Christians, did it? <laughs> point I'm making is the concept of household. Now, in the New Testament, Lydia, we know what, what do we know about Lydia? She was a seller of purple. What does that say about her? She's wealthy. She is a wealthy businesswoman. And so Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman in Philippi and she has a household. How many people do you think were in her household? Just average. 90. Up to 90 people were the average size you're talking about the whole household of a matriarch. And so 90 people, let's say, let's say they weren't 90, let's say they're 50. Or let's say they're 30 in a household. Do you think it's possible that there were people in that household who were baptized but not believers? You either have to assume that everybody confessed the same faith that Lydia did, but the Bible doesn't say that. Nor does it say it about the Philippian jailer. It never says everybody believed. It only said they did. But they baptized the household. And I would say, if you want to take Vegas odds on that, <laughs> there were quite a number of children. Some may have believed. I don't know. You can't make that argument because it's an argument from silence, but you also can't make the counter argument because it's an argument from silence. But I think you have to at least give that some kind of consideration. So the principle of solidarity is very important. Um, otherwise, you have to assume that everybody believed, and there's just no, no place for that. Let's look quickly at Jesus' attitude toward the little children. We know that the Bible points to Jesus' attitude toward little children during his ministry. In Matthew 19, we are told that parents were bringing their children to Jesus so that he might lay hands on them and pray for them. Apparently, these children also included some infants, according to Luke, who were small enough to be held in his arms, according to Mark. There are several significant features of this account. The first is that the parents would even think to bring children to Jesus at all. Surely, this is reflective of the high place that children had always had in God's covenant community. The promise of Genesis 17 was not only for Abraham, it was also for his children. And these parents obviously believed that Jesus would receive the children in a favorable way. The second significant feature of this is the anger that Jesus shows to the disciples for trying to keep the children from coming to him. According to Mark, Jesus was indignant. And he also instructed his disciples not to hinder them from coming to him. Apparently, Jesus thought that his disciples who were all Jews steeped in the provisions of Genesis 17, should have known better. Third significant feature 
is what Jesus says and does. In response to the disciples' efforts to prevent the children from coming to him, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This response is fascinating. <laughs> According to Jesus, the reason the disciples should allow children to come to him is because to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Surely, in the light of the Old Testament context, this means more than that these children were simply examples of what adults must do to be in God's kingdom, which is to humble themselves like a little child. Many of these children could not do anything. They were infants. If Jesus is simply using these children as object lessons to teach adults that they need to have a childlike faith, then how do the infants fit in to his lesson? Jesus cannot be saying that adults need to have an infant-like faith or an infantile faith. Moreover, why would Jesus bless the children if he only means them to be an object to teach adult believers? No doubt, part of what he is saying here is that adults need to have a faith that trusts God implicitly in a childlike way in order to belong to the kingdom of God. But the presence of infants in the story shows that he must also mean something more. Namely, that these children are entitled to all the privileges of the kingdom of heaven in the same way the children had been entitled to all the privileges of the covenant community of God ever since the time of Abraham. Jesus was likely saying that these children <clears throat> was not likely saying that these children were saved. He's not saying that at all, any more than Esau was saved in the Old Testament. But I do think he was ascribing to the children the same kind of privileges, status, and blessing that Esau would have enjoyed as a child of the covenant. Jesus' attitude toward these children is in clear harmony and complete continuity with both Genesis 17 and the household principle we see in the Noachic or Noah covenant. When the children are finally permitted to come to him, Jesus does something that is equally fascinating as what he says. Jesus lays hands on the children and blesses them. This is only one of two occasions in the New Testament where we are told that Jesus pronounces a blessing on others. The others in Luke 24, 50 to 51, where Jesus blesses his disciples immediately before ascending into heaven. The fact that little children are one of only two groups of people that we see Jesus' blessing in the New Testament ought to be enough in itself to make us see this passage about them in a different light. Jesus' blessings of the little children is different from the blessing he pronounces on his disciples. The blessing that Jesus gives to his disciples is performed by the raising of his hands and speaking to them as a collective whole. But with children, Jesus takes each one in his arms and blesses them one by one. How could Jesus do this if he thought these children were outside of God's covenant community until and unless they profess faith in him for themselves? What is the basis upon what he does here? The fact that Jesus blesses these little children indicates that there was a special relationship place already that warranted his blessing them. These children, now you've got to know Jesus is steeped in the Old Testament. I mean, he, in his humanity, he's steeped in the Old Testament. He understands the Abrahamic covenant. So these children, just like those under the Abrahamic covenant, 
were entitled to all the privileges and blessings that come with inclusion in the external covenant community. Now, are we pressing this passage too far? Some of our Christian brothers and sisters would certainly think so, and that's okay. They point out that this story of Jesus blessing the little children has nothing to do with infant baptism. And, of course, they're right. The word baptism does not occur anywhere in the passage. Jesus is not teaching about baptism, at least not explicitly, but he is displaying a hard attitude toward children and infants that is in keeping with the principle behind infant baptism, and that is the principle of the covenant of inclusion. Ever since the time of Noah in Genesis 6 through 7, and the time of Abraham in Genesis 17, the children of believers are seen as different. They were not like the pagan adults living around in the nations around Israel. And they were not like the pagan children of those pagan adults. They were in kind of a relationship with God that they had access. They had privilege of hearing about God and listening to his word and watching it being lived out in the lives of their parents up close and personal. They were children of the covenant. Jesus' attitude toward the little children and especially his blessing them are not only consistent with a covenantal approach, but are clearly reflective of it. That has tremendous implications for our view of baptism. So, there's also one other thing I would say. There are several New Testament scholars that said when Jesus touched the children, that that was a sacramental gesture. Now, I can't prove that. That's what some scholars say. But it is significant that Jesus' attitude was toward inclusion of children. Now, what about 1 Corinthians 7? 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that the child of at least one believing uh, parent is what? Holy. And what is that word in the Greek? Hagios. What does hagios mean? Holy. Every single time it's used. See, I was a Baptist preaching through 1 Corinthians 7, and this is what sleep. Because I didn't know what to do with that term being applied to children. Never seen that before. Well, I read the Bible many times. Never seen that before. Here I am preaching through the text, and this word, because I don't have a cat, I don't know what to do with this. And so it's sort of a backdoor away in, you know, it's kind of like uh, St. Augustine's, or R.C. Sproul was it, when he, he talked about how he was saved, he read a verse in Romans that to me meant nothing. But to him, God used it to explode within him, cause him to see it. The idea, that is a covenantal term. It doesn't mean subjectively holy. It means set apart in the community. That's what it means. It is a cultic term, not cult as in the false cults. But it is a term having to do in the old covenant with the fact of a person being set apart and unique. And so in my view, when you look at the Abrahamic covenant, in the Old Covenant, and you look at everything we've said up to this point, it's a pretty powerful argument, not that you should baptize your children, but that you should at least recognize they have a different status. What I would say to my Baptist friends, do you regard your children who have not yet believed, how do you see them? 
Do you see them as children of wrath, destined for hell, or do you see them, as Paul said, holy, set apart? Now, we all agree that every person who's ever going to be saved has to do what? Repent and believe the gospel. But the fact is, there is a status that belongs to a child of believer. And what I like to tell my Baptist friends is, whether you believe in infant baptism or not, whether you give them the sign or not, they still have the status because of the virtue of the believing pair. Now, why do our Baptist brothers and sisters disagree with us? Because... They're dispensation. No. <laughs> when I was a Baptist, I considered myself not to be a dispensationalist. When I went to seminary three years, I discovered I really was. And you say, well, what is a dispensationalist? Well, a dispensational person looks at the Bible through the lenses of a few presuppositions that say... Dispensationalists regard Israel and the church as totally separate uh, people. There are not one people of God, there are two peoples of God. And so they believe that the Jews are God's earthly, uh, ge geopolitical, geographical people, and that's why they place such an importance on the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem because of their view of the two peoples of God. Number two, they use what I would call a woodenly literal interpretation in their hermeneutic. Everything has to mean, like if the Bible uses Israel, it is always talking about who? Geopolitical, national, ethnic, Israel. But Paul applies the term Israel to whom? The Galatian believers who were what? Gentiles. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, goes to great lengths to say the wall of partition has been torn down between uh, the church and Israel. And, and out of the two, one new man is now made. Uh, the third thing is, um, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, their, their eschatology doesn't seem to look at uh, the church is sort of a plan B in God's operation. In other words, in Matthew 12, the Jews clearly rejected Jesus and he turned to the nations. And so they see that as sort of a hiccup in the divine plan. And the train was rolling along with Israel. It hits the wall. There's a new track set down here for the church. And the church is sort of an afterthought, sort of a minor league. But the real pros are up here. And when you get to the end, the uh, Jewish nation, there'll be a return to Jerusalem, a literal kingdom uh, on earth for a thousand years uh, that is located in Jerusalem, and Jesus will visibly, physically reign there. And uh, what happens to us is we're just with Jesus somewhere. <laughs> you know, and that's good enough for us covenant people. We should be just somewhere. But... There are many other problems, but I I'm sorry. I may take another week if I can. If I can't, I won't. So if that upsets things, fine. But the last thing I want to say, how do we respond to the arguments? 
We love them. Finally, um, the idea that the church is made up exclusively of, of regenerate believers, I'm sorry, it's just not true. Listen to Jesus in uh, Matthew 13 where he says, the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's in Matthew's gospel, so he uses heaven instead of God. Why? Because they didn't like to refer to the name of God. So he just uses heaven, which is a circumlocution for God. But he says this. And by the way, the kingdom and the church aren't the same thing, but one includes the other. The kingdom does include the church, but the kingdom is more than the church. But here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown in the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted out the good into containers and threw away the bad. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus portrays the kingdom as a net that's thrown into the sea. And just as the net is in the sea, but also distinct from the sea, so the kingdom of heaven is in the world, but distinct from the world. Now, there's more I could say, and I really would like to sometimes teach on Jeremiah 31 and sort of expound that to see that the mistake that is often made in the interpretation of Jeremiah 31 is to see it as a uh, cancellation of the Abrahamic covenant. It is not. It is in contradistinction to the Mosaic covenant. Sorry I don't have time for questions. As I told you, this is not a soundbite issue. It's complicated. But I hope you understand. I don't expect to change anybody's mind on this. I do not. I mean, I understand that. But what I want to do is say, there are good and compelling reasons as to why a person would choose to do this. Okay? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you uh, for the love of Jesus Christ. That just as well, uh, Jesus welcomed the children, so he welcomes all of us who are sinful yet repentant and receives us into his arms. And so, Father, we pray that we would uh, agree to disagree agreeably. That is with grace and with love and respect and not to name call and not to have baptismal righteousness and all those kind of issues. We know you hate that and we hate it too. So, Father, we pray you'll prepare us to worship you as we continue our Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen.